Um, I just want to thank you guys for the opportunity to come up here and, and share the word of the Lord with you. We'll be reading in the first chapter of Peter, chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 through 5, a little history of when that was written. Peter wrote this letter from Rome in around 65 AD, and many of you may remember that about that time, Nero was emperor of Rome. Nero really had a terrible family life. His mother was a widow, and eventually she married Claudius Caesar, who was the emperor of Rome. And Claudius already had a son, Britannicus. So now we have her problem. We have Britannicus, his son, Nero, her son. Who's going to ascend the throne when Claudius Caesar dies? Well, we didn't have to wait too long because history tells us that Nero's mother poisoned Claudius with mushrooms and he passed away. And so when that time came, Nero was old enough to ascend the throne. Britannicus was still under the age of 14, so he could not. So Nero became the next emperor of Rome. He didn't waste much time because he ended up killing Britannicus as well after that. Now, Nero reigned for a while, and while he was reigning, there was relative safety or security in the realm of Rome for a little while, but he got kind of tired of his mother interfering with his life, and he killed her as well. Now, you think this is pretty tough, and it was, but he actually became worse after his mother's death. Nero was a builder, and he had always wanted to build a palace on a particular part of land in Rome, but the problem was in that particular part of Rome, there was buildings there already. So Nero devised a plan that he would set fire to those buildings and then he would have a place to build. And he did that. Well, as soon as he set fire to these buildings, he blamed the Christians for setting fire to this part of Rome. Why would he blame the Christians? Well, they were a pretty easy target at the time. They were the minority group. The, the non-believing Jews didn't like them. They hated them. And really, the Christian verbiage back then was that of fire. John the Baptist went around saying he was baptizing in the Holy Spirit and with fire. You might remember when the disciples were with Jesus and they entered a town or a village of Samaritans who rejected Jesus. And John and James said, hey, can we call fire down from heaven and consume them? And then even Paul talked about the fire from heaven when he was in, in Hebrews, when he was talking about when Moses was on the mountain, when there was fire and it was darkness. But he said, Paul said, our Lord is a consuming fire. So this is kind of the context that we get here in First Peter. At that time, Nero started persecuting the, the Christians pretty heavily, and they began to be suffering quite, quite difficultly. Now, we sometimes think that as Christians, when we become saved or when we become believers, that our life will be easy. We'll be free of struggles and temptations and difficulties. Well, Peter is going to disarm that completely all the way through his first letter, all five chapters. He talks about the Christian's suffering his primary message in the whole letter of First Peter is that Christians are going to suffer. And that's usually not what we want to hear. But he does have some encouragement. In chapter 1, and we won't get to that this evening, he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. In chapter 2, he says, For this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. And you might remember that Jesus said, that he was going to, that the world would hate us because they hated Jesus. Well, the cross is a way of suffering. And so here he tells us that, leaving us an example that we might follow in his steps. In chapter three, he says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. In chapter four, 
He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange is happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And then in chapter five, he kind of offers us maybe what we would call an encouragement when we talk about suffering. And I kind of like the way he puts it. He says this. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you to him. Be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So we're not exempt as Christians from struggles and from trials and persecutions. And even if that's not what we're involved with right now, our life is going pretty easy. We're just not exempt from that. God calls us to a relationship with him. And we're going to hear that this morning. This is going to be the encouragement from 1 Peter. He calls us for a relationship with him. He chooses us. Well, why does God choose us? God chooses us because he loves us. And God has an inheritance that he's going to talk about this morning that Peter will talk about that is in heaven. It's being guarded for us. Now, there's an old Roman saying that says, where there is life, there is hope. And that's partly true. We do have to have life to have hope. But what Peter tells us this morning and what we're going to learn this morning is what does give us hope is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Well, we all know this morning that Christ has been raised and the preaching is not in vain and our faith is not in vain. So if you have your Bibles open with me, 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 through 5. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Let's pray. Dear Holy Father, we're so blessed to be together this morning as a church. God, and how blessed it's been just to hear the voices of your saints um, rise up, Lord, and to bless you and to praise you, God, this morning in song. And God, as we study this morning this, these few verses in Peter, God, I pray that you would encourage us. Just as we sang encouraging words, I pray these words would encourage us in our walk with you, God, that you would show us more magnificently what you have for us, Lord. God, that our hearts would be tender towards the word, God, that you would open up our minds, Lord, to hear the truth of your scripture. God, I pray that you would bless the reading of your word this morning. I pray, God, you would bless the explanation of your word. And I pray this all in the holy name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, well, now we see the very first thing we see in this chapter is that Peter is the author. Now, Peter is one of those guys that we all love. In fact, if you were to talk to my, my kids, um, and me included, Peter is probably one of our most favorite apostles in the whole Bible because we can kind of re relate to him. He had his ups and downs, his sideways moments, his foibles and things like that. But Peter really is a relatable guy. And that's what we love about Peter. 
he stood firm in his faith throughout his life. And that was the one thing that I really like about him. He, he faltered at times, but he stood firm in his faith. And this is a good encouragement for us as we study this letter. Not only that, we see that Peter calls himself an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, I asked my kids this week if they knew what the difference between an apostle and a disciple was, and they did a pretty good job. And so if you're standing here, if you have young ones and they don't know the difference between an apostle and a disciple, I'm going to give you a real easy way to learn it. You ready? All apostles were disciples, but not all disciples were apostles. Clear as mud, right? I'm just kidding with you guys. Look, Peter puts forth his apostleship in the introduction probably because he has no relationship, really immediate connection with, these, with this area and these churches. He appeals to his, his apostleship as an explanation to why he is writing them. And note that he designates himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's not calling attention to himself, which he often did, but to the one who commissioned him. Now, an apostle was given the authority of the one who sent him, and we know that's Jesus. Apostles were given direct revelation of God's word to proclaim it authoritatively, the gift of healing. And if you remember reading in the New Testament that even those that passed, when Peter passed by and his shadow fell on them, they were healed and they were given the power to cast out demons. Second Corinthians 12 tells, it, tells us this, that by these signs, their teaching and authority was verified. So this is who Peter was and he identifies himself in a, as an apostle. Now, right after that, he tells us who he's writing. He's writing to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, I want to focus on those, those first two words, the elect and the exiles. Now, if you were here with us a couple of months ago, Joseph Norris took us through the Ephesians, and he gave us a really good idea of what election meant. And this wasn't a word that was scary to the New Testament writers or to the apostles. Election wasn't that scary at all. Election literally means called out ones or chosen ones. And I'm so glad that Morgan chose this morning to, to pick Ephesians chapter 1 to read out of for me. And this is one of, my, one of my proof texts, actually, for what we're going to talk about. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. God chooses God is elected. And how does he do this? How does he choose? How does he elect? Well, if we go to verse 2, we see this word, these words, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, look, God doesn't look over the human race. He's not up in heaven in some crazy place where you don't see him. And he's broken all these twigs up, and he throws them out into the atmosphere, and then they fall down on the earth, and whoever they hit, that's who God chooses to save. That's not what God did. God's choice of us was not random. No, there's wisdom, there's knowledge, there's forethought, that goes into his choosing. Now, foreknowledge does not mean that God chose you and I only because we chose him first, right? That would be no choosing on God's part at all. God's choice of believers is not random. I like what Wearsby says here. He says this quote, and I'll quote this, this paragraph. Foreknowledge does not suggest that God merely knew ahead of time that we would believe and therefore he chose us. This would raise the question, who or what made us decide for Christ? and would take our salvation completely out of God's hands. The plan of salvation must include the work of the Spirit in convincing the sinner and bringing him to faith in Christ. Now, you might remember some verses in Romans chapter 3 that Paul quotes out of the Old Testament is something that might be familiar to you in regards to this. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. 
All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Look, if there was choosing on our part, if we were choosing God first, this, you couldn't quote these verses. These verses tell us exactly what, we, what our condition was like. No one understood. No one was seeking after the Lord. The Lord was seeking after us. And finally, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, which was read this morning as well, it says this. In love, he predestined us. His foreknowledge, okay? For adoption to himself as sons through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of his will. Some may say according to his pleasure and will. God shows us because he loves us. Now, he calls them exiles. And some of your translations may say aliens. Some may say pilgrims. I like the word pilgrim because we're celebrating Thanksgiving soon here. But it's a good word picture for what he's trying to explain. A pilgrim is someone who doesn't settle down in one place. They're looking for a place to settle. They're, they're not just simply passing through, but they're a foreigner who settled down for however how long next to or with the native people. This is a great example for us, for the believer today in the midst of a perverse and crooked generation. Look, our place for believers is not in this world. It's in heaven. So keep reminding yourself of this, that you're residing here as a pilgrim in this present age. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says this, do not be conformed to this world or being poured into the mold or being molded by this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is the good and acceptable and profitable and perfect, excuse me. Look, spiritual Christians need to keep themselves loosely attached to this world because we are looking for something and someone far greater. We need to remember that our stay here on earth is just temporary until we're called home. You might remember Lot when he stopped becoming a sojourner or a pilgrim and he became a resident of Sodom, right? He lost his, his testimony and all the things that he had went up in smoke. Here's a neat quote that I really liked and I don't know who the author is, I couldn't find it, but I like this quote to explain being a pilgrim. Christians reside in their respective countries, but only as aliens. They take part in everything as citizens and put up with everything as foreigners. Every foreign land is their home and every, foreign, every home a foreign land. They find themselves in the flesh, but do not live according to the flesh. They spend their days on earth, but they hold a citizenship in heaven. Amen to that. Now, he was writing to these exiles who were of the dispersion. Now, that might be a familiar term to you. Dispersion is a familiar term in reference to the ancient times when the Jews were dispersed during the Babylonian Empire. That's not who Peter's referring to. He, is, he has in mind the Jewish and Gentile converts who were dispersed in this area as Christians. He's saying, hey, look, you're dispersed. You're a pilgrim. You don't have a homeland, just like the Jews during the Babylonian exile. Now, there was a really interesting dispersion that took place in the New Testament in Acts chapter 8 after the stoning of Stephen. And this is what it says in chapter 8. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered. That word scattered is the same word we see here in Peter for dispersion. They were dispersed throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. And then further in verse 4, it says, Now those who were scattered or dispersed went about preaching the word. So look, the church at this time in this verse was scattered like a seed so they could spread the seed, the word of God, the gospel. So look, we're not in our homeland. We are waiting for something far better and far greater. 
And while we were waiting, while we're scattered, we need to spread the seed of the gospel. This is exactly what we hear in Matthew 28 when Jesus says this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, this area that he's writing to that we see um, is currently the current, the current general area of Turkey today, right? Now, these exiles that he was writing to back then had been providentially sown. If you think about it, they had sent out, they were scattered, providentially sown by the Lord of the harvest to become themselves disseminators of the gospel, which was given to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. But now we have this area. Just really quick, I want to talk a little bit about Turkey, so some of you know. I did a little internet research to see how many Christians were still in, or if there was any Christians in Turkey, because this is the general area that Peter was writing to. This is what it says if you look it up on the internet. Today in Turkey, Islam is the largest religion. According to the state, 99.8% of the population is initially registered as Muslim. 90% of those are, follow Sunni Islam, and the remaining 0.2% are Christians in adherence to other officially recognized religions like Judaism. And my point being is this, is we have been providentially sown where we're at. I believe all of us have been providentially sown where we live, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, by the Lord, to become disseminators of the gospel. During the Matthew 28, God has told us to go. I hope and I pray that in a thousand years and 2,000 years since this was written, and we talk now that we don't have just 0.2% of Christians in this area, in our church or in our family. We have to spread the seed. It's our responsibility. So that's my encouragement is to keep looking that direction. Now he goes on further to say that he's chosen them according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit to obedience in Jesus Christ. Well, what does he mean when he says sanctification? That's a big word. Well, the definition of sanctification is basically this. It's the process by which the Holy Spirit eliminates sin from the experience of the believer and produces his fruit, gradually conforming the believer into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this process goes on throughout the Christian life. In sanctification, the work of the Holy Spirit produces in the lives of believers a set-apart life consistent with their new position. So we've been sanctified by the Spirit, set apart in the image of the Lord, and the evidence of this sanctifying work that's being done in our life is now the person chooses to obey God, which is divine enablement. We can't do that on our own. And here comes that word that we don't want to hear, right? Obedience. It says we've been saved for obedience to Christ Jesus. If you think that God chose you to, and you have a stamp to heaven now, bam, and you can live however you want, you don't understand, you have the wrong theology. You have the wrong doctrine. You don't understand what Peter is saying because the choosing that Peter describes here is done by God and it's for sanctification of the spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. Now, let me be clear. Obedience doesn't save us. Faith alone saves us. But faith that is genuine produces obedience. In other words, faith alone saves, but faith is not alone. Faith that is not manifesting a tendency towards obedience in Jesus Christ is a faith that is suspect at best and is counterfeit at worst. So he's, he's sprinkled us, excuse me, for the sprinkling of blood. I want to get to that point. This kind of refers us back to the Old Testament time with Moses in Exodus 
And it refers back to when the people of Israel were symbolically sealed for their, in their covenant to obey God. In Exodus, we read that as Moses took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, they all said this, all the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant, which is the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Notice in this text from Exodus that the people declared their commitment to obedience first, and then Moses sprinkled, sprinkled sacrificial blood on them to ratify the covenant. Well, Peter has it in the same order, obedience first, and then the sprinkling of the blood in the same order. Now, how do we understand this going forward? Well, the Apostle John gives us some clues in 1 John chapter 1, when he says, If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And then he further explains it in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. He says this, For if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we see some of the ratification of the covenant in the Old Testament with the sprinkling of the blood. We see in the New Testament a purification from the sprinkling of the blood. And we wonder how all this fits together. Well, I found a quote from Contending the Faith, for the faith, and I like how it talks about it. So I think it'll make it a little bit easier to understand for us. It says this, this is an allusion to the Old Testament, speaking of Exodus chapter 24. But the allusion finds its fullest expression in the New. Notice what he says next. We are being brought along by the Spirit, not only unto obedience, but also unto the sprinkling of blood. These two are set with one another. Obedience is a human part of man's election, and the sprinkling of the blood is G of Jesus Christ is the divine part. So that's how those two fit together. James McKnight also has a similar commentary. He says this, So all who receive the gospel are emblematically sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ in the Lord's Supper. For on the very night of the institution of the Lord's Supper, the Savior said of the cup, this is the blood of the New Testament shed for many for the remissions of sin. So now we have a little bit of understanding of what the sprinkling of the blood means. Well, the next three verses is really where I want to focus. This is where Peter is going to describe what God did when he saved us, what God did when we were born again. Look, there is no doing on our part in this. It's all about what God has done for us. And we see in verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a big exclamation point. It's like shouting it out. Blessed be the Lord and God of our Father of our Father. Excuse me. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I love that there's an exclamation point there. So what has God done? What has God done? Well, Peter says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. He has given us new life in Jesus Christ. When you and I were saved... He made us a new creation. But focus on those words, he has caused us. He has caused us. That phrase should stop every mouth from saying that we had anything to do with our salvation. He has caused us. Sinful men are helpless and hopeless outside of God's grace. And that was what Romans chapter 3 said. None of us were good. We were all worthless. We all had turned aside. None one was seeking after the Lord. For all of us were born in Adam. Ephesians chapter 2, though, and I really like this, it's a similar idea of what, God, what Peter is saying here, offers us a great parallel to this verse. It has a synonymous phrase in there, and so I want to talk to you a little bit about that. So if you want to Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to go 
through the first couple of verses, but I'm just going to paraphrase the first three. Paul is talking to us in Ephesians chapter two, and he tells us what we are. We were dead in our trespasses. We were walking in the course of this world. We were following the prince of the power of the air. We were living in the passions of our flesh. We were carrying out the desires of the body and mind. We were doing all these things. But then in verse four, he tells us something different. We have a divine change here. But God, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, God's motivation, love, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith in that not of yourself. Is there any cause that we did here? Is there any, I did this for myself? No, it's his grace, his kindness. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast, because if we could boast that we saved ourselves, we would do it. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in him. So we were born again, but what were we born again into? A living hope. Well, how is that hope living? It's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Look, a hope that comes from a resurrected Jesus is a living hope. It's not a dead hope. If your hope is in Buddha or Allah or Muhammad or some other God, like Paul said, the unknown God in the New Testament, it's a dead hope. The only living hope we have is in a risen Jesus Christ. And this should motivate us towards those around us who are hopeless, who are walking around unknowingly worshiping an unknown God. We should gen genuinely speak to them about the love of Christ and the hope that we have in the only living God, Jesus, our resurrected Lord and Savior. Look, the hope is living, and why is it living? Because it's set to an inheritance that is imperishable. This inheritance is undefiled. This inheritance is unfading. Why? Because it's kept in heaven for you. Let's take these three words and talk about them. Imperishable. It means this inheritance is totally unlike any earthly inheritance that you might have. It can't be ravaged by any hostile forces. You might... Um, be wondering about an inheritance if, you're, if you have parents that may hand you something down. And sometimes we get inheritances from our, from our family, but sometimes there's people that contest wills and inheritances, and we may not even receive that. Or that inheritance might be used to pay for bills or other things that came to us, and there may be nothing left by the time we receive it. But not so this one. This inheritance is guaranteed. It belongs in heaven. And what is in heaven also? Our treasures. But this inheritance belongs in heaven where neither moth or rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. Not only is our do we have a, this imperishable inheritance, but we also have an undefiled inheritance. It's in perfect condition. It's free from any spot. It's not polluted in any way. It has nothing that defiles it. It's like the pure driven snow. It's free from any defect or any influence that might lose its value. It cannot be cheapened in any way, and it cannot disappoint us in any way. It's also unfading. And I want you to think of the most beautiful flower that you've ever seen, the color, the vibrant colors of the petals, maybe the way it was shaped, maybe how it 
fits with other flowers in, a, in an arrangement. Think of the most beautiful flower you've ever seen. Your inheritance in Christ is better than that because it will retain its priceless, unspeakable beauty forever. It's unfading. Now, this inheritance came to us the moment we believed in Jesus Christ. And it's been kept reserved for those themselves who are now being guarded. It says here that it's kept in heaven for you by, whose God's, by who by God's power are being guarded through faith. This, faith. this phrase could be translated, it has been laid up and now kept guarded in safe deposit. Look, no burglars again, no bandits can break through where this inheritance is kept. It won't be given to someone else by mistake. It can't be devalued by taxes and it comes with title insurance, our Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now, it also says here that our inheritance is constantly being guarded by God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. Our faith is being, our inheritance, excuse me, we are constantly being guarded by the omnipotent power of God, which guarantees every believer's final victory, even when we think or feel like it's not gonna, we're not going to make it. It looks it's been written, this, this phrase was written in the passive voice, which indicates guarding is not being carried out by us, but by an outside force, specifically God, whose power is continually guarding us. Peter's point is this. We're going to make it to heaven. If you are a believing follower of Jesus Christ, you're going to make it to heaven. You will not lose your salvation, no matter what trials that you experience. So hang in there. We're being guarded by God's power. Barnes puts it this way. The only reason which any Christian has to suppose they will ever reach heaven is the fact that God keeps them by his own power. If it were left to the will of man, to the strength of his own resolutions, to his power to meet temptations, and to any probability that he would himself continue to walk in the path of life, there would be no certainty that anyone would be saved. Now, he also talks about this salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Hebrews is going to help us a little bit with the understanding of that phrase. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, that's our past history, will appear a second time, our second coming, that's future, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him as our glorification. Look, the recipients of this letter were undergoing persecution for Christ's sake. And Peter was informing them that they had a reserved inheritance, that they might look past their troubles. I'm going to quote a story from John Corson in closing as he talks about this ending. A young man who was being hazed by a college fraternity was taken to a secluded spot where he was told to hold on to a knot at the end of a greased rope as his fraternity brothers lowered him into a dark well. Thinking they would pull him up after a few minutes, he was terrified to see them tie their end of the rope to the bar across the top of the well, leaving him suspended in midair. This can't be, he thought as he called for help, but none answered. As he approached the 15-minute mark, his arms ached unbelievably and his shoulders feeling as though they were on fire. He started to cry. Finally, after the 25-torturous-minute mark, able to hang on no longer, he let go, and he fell two inches 
just as his fraternity brothers had calculated. Isn't that just like us, Corson says. Where are you, God? I don't know if I'm going to make it. We cry it. We fret. We blubber and we scream until we finally let go. And guess what we find? We discover that our solid rock, Jesus Christ, was there all along. A bunch of us have burning shoulders and aching arms for absolutely no reason. We're trying to hang on through our own efforts by our own spirituality. We get disgusted with ourselves and we're worried that we're not going to make it. But if we would just let go of the rope and rest in what Jesus did on the cross of Calvary, we would realize it's not our puny efforts which will see us through, but the power of God. This is what Peter is telling the believers who were no doubt wondering whether when the temptation, when the temperature rose and persecution came down, if they would be able to hang in there. I want you to know something, Peter said. You have an inheritance waiting for you which can't be taken from you. You are kept by the power of God who is committed to seeing you through. And all that remains is for you to believe. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time, God, to be in your word. God, we thank you for the encouragement that we have through these words of Peter. God, that you are watching over us, God. You are watching over our inheritance. You are guarding it, Father, as a deposit. God, we're so thankful that we know that we don't lose our salvation just because we, have a mis we make a mistake, Lord, because we struggle, Father. But you are there always with us, Lord. So thankful that we can re rely, God, on the Scripture, knowing that you have chosen us, God, that you have saved us, God. It wasn't anything that we did on our own because we wouldn't have done it on our own, Father, but you did it, Father. God, from the beginning of time, it says in Ephesians, from the before the world was created, God, you chose us, God, and your motivation was love. And God, you love us so tremendously as we see what Christ did on the cross for us, that while we were yet sinners, God, while we were still living the way that Paul described us, following after the prince of the air, God, living in terrible ways, God, Christ died for us, Lord. God, this is proof, God, of your love for us, God, and it never fades, God. Your, your, your love for us never goes away. God, I pray this morning that if we're struggling through life's challenges and, and we, we have um, things that we just haven't anticipated in our life, God, that you would encourage us, God, as we consider the things that you've done for us, God, that we would, as Peter said, praise your name for the things that you've done, God. God, we know that you have so much more for us. We don't have to, to wait to see it, God. Help us to rest in your love and what you've done for us on the cross. God, I ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.